Welcome to Artificially Intelligent Marketing, a weekly podcast where we stay on top of the latest trends, tips, and tools in the world of marketing AI, helping you get the best results from your marketing efforts. Now let's join our hosts, Paul Avery and Martin Broadhurst. Hello, everybody. It's Paul Avery here. Welcome to episode 39 of Artificially Intelligent Marketing. I'm here with my co-host and the lovely Martin Broadhurst. How are we, Martin? I'm splendid. <laughs> just splendid. That's, just that, that, That's it. The a end. single word will do it. Uh, I'm not splendid. Um, this has got nothing to do with marketing or AI, but we do we do talk about football or soccer on the podcast sometimes, and usually it's me teasing Martin about just how useless Derby County are. But I'm a Liverpool fan, and today our talisman, Jurgen Klopp, has announced he'll be leaving the club. So I'm really going to have to muster energy today, Martin, for uh, for this conversation because I'm really sad. Yeah, it was a big announcement. I was shocked, but uh, I can see why it might impact you. There is going to be a grieving process to grow through, grow through, to go and grow through. Um, so yeah, I accept there's going to be denial, anger, and at some point you'll land on acceptance. Well, hopefully I can get to that quickly. Fortunately, as much as that's big news, there's been more big news in the world of marketing and AI. Um, we've got some interesting stuff to talk through today. We've got the UK government publishing um, some more guidance on generative AI from employees. We're going to dive into it. I think that's going to be really interesting. We've got Google releasing a new text-to-video model that none of us can play with yet, but as usual, the demo videos look awesome. So this could be the next improvement as we iterate our way up towards production-level video quality from from generative AI. Runway, uh, one of our favorite companies, as listeners will know, we're going to talk about what they've been doing to improve their video tool. We've got some new um, enhancements and cost reductions coming to OpenAI's platform for those that use the uh, API. Eleven Labs, uh, voice synthesis fame, have got a ton of cash to improve their product even further. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the ongoing evolution of AI website builders and uh, is there is it all hype or are they actually uh, any good? We're going to talk about that as well. We've got an MIT study on whether or not AI is going to replace us all. That's going to be quite interesting. Obviously, we've got, for those of you that watch TV, you'll have seen the ads for Samsung Galaxy S24 with its AI baked in and the rise of AI phones and then a bunch of other stuff all in between. So I think mine between us, we're going to help me get over the Jurgen Klopp news by looking at all this exciting AI news instead. What do you reckon? Well, there's plenty to go at and if nothing else, it'll be a short term distraction. Well, let's do it. Let's get stuck in. Let's talk about this new guidance from the UK government, Martin. They've published the Generative AI Framework for HM Government, which is a 70-odd page document covering all things about safe, responsible, and effective use of generative AI in government and the public sector. And I've been fairly critical of this government and certain episodes in the past. I've given them a bit of a bashing. But this document is very good. I applaud them. I think they've done a really comprehensive job when it comes to explaining what AI is and generative AI, explaining how to use it, giving some examples, talking about how to procure it, talking about the ethics and responsible use. It's a very broad document, but the language that they write in is plain English. It's technical without being 
overly technical if you're just a you know a departmental head in you know a local authority you could pick up this and read it without needing to know anything about you know, deep learning and and neural networks and all of that kind of thing so they've done a really good job it's based around 10 core principles and they're very easy to understand. There's no complexity to it. Now, the 10 core principles, I'll kind of give you a, a summary of what they include. It talks about uh, you should be operating with an understanding of what generative AI is and its limitations, recognizing what it can and can't do. You should understand what it is to use generative AI in a lawful, ethical, and responsible way. They talk about security, data privacy, uh, implementing technical controls about who can access the data. They talk about meaningful human control, which is about emphasizing the necessity of human oversight. You know, that kind of human in the loop, the kind of thing that we talk about all the time on the podcast when it comes to using these systems. Uh, there's, there's more as well. I'm not going to go into all of them, but they very much talk about skills and expertise, being collaborative with commercial colleagues from the start. And I think the thing that really stood out to me is that they're really taking generative AI and the potential benefits as well as the potential downsides and risks. They're taking it very seriously. They're not shying away from this. This is very much an innovation-first approach from government. I'm very keen to see it. And the thing that really came through for me in the in the forward and in the executive summary is they're really pushing AI literacy. This is big to the point of, well, you can see this as a big change management piece for them, as evidenced by additional resources outside of this PDF being made available. One right. such document is a poster that lists the 10 principles and the 10 core principles of using generative AI. And they're encouraging departments and managers to access these posters and put them up around their workplace. So you're going to start seeing local councils and all these uh, government bodies having posters talking about best practice for using generative AI. They are not shying away from it. They're really, really leaning into it. So is this document, this is for internal use within county councils and, and government institutions. This is not more broad advice for small businesses, for example. No, this is very much for internal use within government, local government, um, NHS, you know, all these government departments. It's about how to use this in a safe and responsible way. However, it applies to everyone. You could pick up this document and, you know, do a find and replace government for my business and it would be just as valid. It's it's a really well-crafted document and I think it's um, plain English to the point where anyone can pick it up and, and learn from it. I think that's important, right? Because this, the world of generative AI the technical aspects become become quite opaque. I think even one of the challenges we sometimes face on the podcast is 
trying to walk that line between, yeah, transformer architectures and um, retrieval augmented generation and all of this sort of buzzword bingo that most people are probably like, I don't know what that is. So you've just alienated me and I don't really care about how it all works. I want to know what I can do with it. So it sounds like it's they've bridged that gap to try and make sure that people who are not inside the system can still benefit. But I guess the other question I would have is how instructive is the document? Is it like, hey, you should you should use AI lawfully and ethically. And then everyone's like, yeah, that makes sense. But then it has does it have instruction on how best to do that or does it not really go into that detail? There's lots of directional and kind of signposting to other documents and talking about like, here's a document that we've published about cybersecurity and here's a document about this that we've published. It is a bit instructional as well. Each of the core principles has, you know, a page or two going into more depth about it. Uh, so yeah, like I say, it's a, it's a good practical document. It's not short. It's a 70 odd page resource. This isn't like a five page pamphlet that you'd sit and flick through in your doctor's waiting room kind of thing. There is a, there is a little bit of detail in there that, that is very helpful. So would you advise then for SMEs, for example, thinking about, oh, crumbs, at some point I'm going to have to have a look at this generative AI thing and start to think about how we use it in our business. Could this be like a good first step for them to read this document? Very much so. And not just SMEs, you know, any organization, if you're a, a senior exec in, in enterprise, right, this document is as instructive for you in your role as it is for an SME entrepreneur, owner, managing a team of you know, 20 to 200, whatever it may be, um, 20,000 people. And um, think about how many people are in the NHS, right? Uh, this, this is just some really solid principles. The 10 core principles that they've come up with are very good. There's also some other bits in there that are, are really, what's the best word to describe it? Grounded in the present reality. So there's a section about procurement and how to procure generative AI. And there's a there's a whole page on it, which is basically procuring technologies in an emerging market. And it talks about the risks and the limitations and how do you assess vendors when new ones are popping up all of the time. Now, this is only a page or two. It's not you know a whole textbook on it, but it's they're clearly recognizing that, look, this is fast paced. This is changing the, if you buy something today, the situation could be completely different in six months time. So you've got to make sure that you're identifying the right use cases. You're evaluating the technology using some really solid principles. Yeah. Overall, a great document. Yeah. I love that. I think they're some of the critical things. We talk about some of those things on the podcast quite often, but I think they are critical when it comes to getting started, figuring out the right tools. As we talked about a couple of times, there's so many strands to this. Technology is a, is a key driver and the emerging tools and, and the emerging capabilities, but the human part of this, the change management part is just as critical. So yeah, nice to see a document that is a good sign poster for internal use within you know the UK government and, um, and associated infrastructure. But also it sounds like Martin, a document that others can use as well to try and get some insights into how they can move ahead with generative AI. Yeah, I'll make sure that I pop a link in the show notes if anyone wants to access the document themselves. Well, I think that would be extremely kind of you and a good idea. 
Um, cool story. Thanks for finding that one, Martin. Let's move on to our next one. So Publicist Group, which is a pretty large global advertising communications company that some of our listeners might have heard of, have announced over the last week or two uh, an ambitious investment of over 300 million euros in AI over the next three years, alongside the introduction of its new AI platform, which it calls Core AI. The company aims to enhance its capabilities across all of its organization with investment in both technology on the AI side, but also personnel development. Core AI is the centerpiece of Publicis Group's AI strategy, and it's designed as like an intelligent system that's going to incorporate things like foundational AI models, AI agents, there's going to be an API layer for moving information around, and also partnerships with third-party AI services like OpenAI, Adobe, Amazon, Microsoft, people we often talk about here on the podcast, to basically connect trillions of data points and a database of 2.3 billion consumer profiles to influence how the agency groups do business, right? In terms of insights and strategy, media planning, creative and production, software development, operations, and all that good stuff. Um, the market liked this because <laughs> Publicist Group's stock price reached a record high off the back of this news. And I think for people like you and I, Martin, we're, you know, you're X agency and I currently lead an agency. It's interesting to see these big agency groups, some of them, in this case, publishers going all in on AI. I can't say I'm surprised. I think it probably does take organizations or groups with this heft, right? That this size of company to try and bake AI in in this way. But yeah, it's a it's an interesting one. What were your thoughts on this news item? Not surprising when you see that they've got huge amounts of data that they're sat on you know digital has been at the core of the business model of these huge agencies they've typically been going around acquiring businesses in the data insight and analytics world for a while so they've they've got lots of top talent typically speaking i'm not sure specifically whether or, or about the acquisitions of publicists but you see them in headlines about acquiring those kind of organizations regularly uh, I think this makes sense. If you're going to get a competitive edge, then you've got to make the data that you've got available to you work for you. And, and how else can you do that other than building your own AI layer? Makes sense that they've productized it and given it a brand name, Core AI. You know, gives them something to take to the market and hang their hat on when they're going for put pictures and to be able to say we've got our Core AI infrastructure. I'd love to see what that actually looks like. You know, how is that actually manifesting itself within the team? Is it a is it a front end system that people can can plug into, or is that more of a process and a way of operating? You know, what does that what does it mean? Um, they, they talked about the API layer, so there's got to be some actual technology underpinning it all. Um, it's not just plugging a bunch of tools into into one another. Uh, yeah, as with all of these things, without getting your hands on it, you, you can't um, you can't say much more than oh, it's an interesting sounding press release that makes their stock price go up. Uh, but I'll, yeah, I would welcome the opportunity to speak to some of the the AI team at Publicist to talk about what what their vision is for it and, and where it goes from here. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I mean, 
a lot of this, I think, is that branded AI inside play to help them differentiate themselves against the other big agency groups until the other big agency groups make these types of announcements, which are probably not far off. I think you're right in terms of how data centric a lot of these groups have become over the years. And it's almost like it's like they're mini but slightly diversified Facebook approach, right? Like Facebook's got loads of data on us. They're using AI to help surface content and show ads to the right people and even to like generate ads now. And you could definitely imagine how Publicist Group could use similar tools uh, internally for audience creation and segmentation for their clients, predictions in terms of consumer purchase habits, and then building strategies, content creation, programmatic advertising off the back of that. Um, so I think I don't even know how much their clients are going to get to see of how that machinery works, if I'm honest. I think it'll be more these are the outcomes that we can get. These are the outputs that we'll produce. And there's AI magic in here and AI is buzz and cool and we're buzz and cool and you should work with us, I suspect, is uh, this is where a lot of that will come down to. But um, but there are some tools. It's nice that they're creating their own infrastructure and tools to use, but there are some tools that hopefully lots of people are going to be able to use, like um, Google's new text-to-video model, Martin. Yeah, nice to see Google Research publishing new papers. They've just developed a new model called Lumiere, which is a space-time text-to-video diffusion model uh, capable of transforming text and images into realistic AI-generated videos. Now, I am not going to pretend that I know what space-time text-to-video diffusion model actually means, but what I can tell you is that this? what makes this model slightly different is it stands out for its ability to generate full frame rate, low resolution videos in one pass using what they're calling the space-time unit architecture, which processes multiple space-time scales. I read this story and felt overwhelmed with with technical input. I was like, I need someone to explain this like I'm five. So I asked perplexity to explain it like, a, like I'm five. And it did a good job, but it basically did just say, this is a computer system that can make videos. And it's, it looks at an image and it makes an image. There you go. <laughs> right, like, right. Okay. Maybe you've dumbed it down slightly too hard for me there. Um, but yeah, this is an is an interesting development. Having seen the demo video, again, demo videos, right? Always got to be wary, particularly with Google's recent track record of demo videos and people being scandalized. But the demo video looks cool. The videos look high quality. Um, they've trained it on a data set of 30 million videos and text captions. They've not disclosed any of the training data set but you know let's be honest they've got enough data that they're sat on it can do text to video generation converts still images into videos generates videos in specific styles using a reference image and it does video in painting so its capabilities are quite broad certainly much broader than we see from some of the other text to image generators on the market it produces five second videos um, at the moment, and it's not available for us to use. This is very much just a research paper, but I expect that we'll see something on the market in the near future um, based on, well, how long did it take for the 
Imogen to come to market. It was about the best part of a year, wasn't it, actually? Yeah, I think my gut on this stuff is that sometimes we see the products accessible in some sort of demo form in about three months, but in terms of it being baked into something that you could use on a sort of more regular basis, yeah, six months, maybe 12. So hopefully it will come soon. I mean, watching the demo videos and trying to understand this space time which just sounds really cool anyway like let's you know let's let's give them props for that i feel like i'm in star wars or star trek or something um is this ability to create more realistic motion because one of the issues when you're trying to create motion in tools like runway is people's heads morph weirdly um even items in the videos morph weirdly so it's kind of hard to get a moving image to video generation where the original image doesn't get mangled in some way during the process so that you look at it and you're like, that's clearly AI generated. Like even the best examples for me are super obviously AI generated. I think what reading between the lines here, the nature of how this model works should ensure that frame to frame, the the image is animating or sort of sort of moving in a way that's more realistic so if someone turns their head it should look like they're normally turning their head if their hair blows in the breeze it should look more natural um, if a if a boat is moving left to right it should look more natural and i think that's what they're claiming but as you said until we can actually get our hands on it and play with it because the gap there will be a gap between the demos and the real and the real world use because as we talk about a lot and this might be um user error more than anything, but you and I struggle to get anything that looks particularly good out of runway, if we're honest, right? I think you have to spend ages refining your prompt and thinking carefully about your input image to get stuff that's like looks really good. I would love this to be a step forward in usability for your average user. So you can just chuck an image in, put in a prompt to get a half decent result without all of the garbledness that seems to plague most video generation tools at the moment. That is the dream. Um, while we're on video generation tools, um, and we've mentioned Runway, who we think are awesome, by the way, and doing great work in this area, they are not resting on their laurels either because they have upgraded their AI video generation capabilities with the new multi-motion brush in their flagship Gen 2 video generation model. So many of you might know from previous podcast ep episodes when we discussed the introduction of the original motion brush, which was interesting because rather than just uploading an image as a prompt and then Gen 2 tries to animate the whole image, you could use the motion brush to say, to just paint a certain bit of the image and just encourage the model to only animate that. So an example would be um, a boat on a river, but you don't want, but there's loads of other things that are in the shot, but you don't want those to animate. So you just paint the boat and then ideally the boat sails along on the river. Well, now with the multi-brush, multi-motion brush feature, Instead of just painting one thing, you can now paint multiple things that will animate in different ways. So you might want one boat going one way, but you might want another boat going in the opposite direction, which in theory now you can do because you can paint the image in in essence with different brushes in different colors and have them do different things. So this is kind of cool because it's part of the ongoing evolution of how these video tools are maturing, giving users ever greater control about which parts of an image, uh, assuming they're using an image in their prompt that they want it to animate. Um, I haven't actually had a play with the multi 
motion brush, multi brush motion crumbs. It's a bit of a mouthful. Um, I don't know if you've had a play with this yet. Um, and I've seen some of the videos that look pretty cool, but I haven't actually tried it out and broken it like I probably will. Not with the multi motion. I tried the motion brush and just failed. I think with these video, um, the, the video generation models, there's, um, as, okay, as with any AI, you've got to understand the limitations and where it's currently at. And I think I've still not found where that kind of sweet spot is when I'm using these tools. I understand the limits of what GPT-3 can do, and I understand how to get good value and good outputs from GPT-4. Dali and Stable Diffusion and Mid-Journey, I'm getting good results from those, and I know where I can push the boundaries and where to, to row back. But video, I, I, I can't get there. And I try and I try different prompting techniques and it does take time. So I think there's a, there's definitely an element of, of user error about this, but I also think the models, the video models just still are a little bit meh. And that's probably why we're not seeing lots and lots of examples coming out of people creating great stuff. And actually when I see a video come out and bearing in mind, you know, we're both in, in these communities online, when you do see some of these videos come out, they're kind of noticeable because they're an exception. Um, I think I a agree. lot of people are having similar, similar struggles in finding where, where these models work well and, where they fall apart because i'm really good at finding where they fall apart yeah i think i think you've nailed it there because the best examples i see are people creating m sort of trailers or like very short movies that are like 60 seconds long that are fast cutting because these tools can only really produce two three five seconds of video that has like it starts to lose its coherence the longer it goes. And so they're cutting quite quickly. They're trying to maintain consistent characters in, you know, in between different shots, if you like. Um, and I suspect that in most cases they're using image prompting. So the image is in the prompt to help really direct the system on how which, you know, what motion to create, what, what the video output video should look like. The, for me, this is still in the hobbyist have some fun with it phase. I don't think it's got the necessary production level power to be of real use to marketers. I'm going to stick my neck out and say that. Um, my use case that I that I expect to come first, but again, I'm frustrated because I can't get a decent output reasonably quickly, is just adding some motion to things like social media static images that would have been static, but it would be really great to just animate a few bits of them um, to be honest, the go-to for me there is still probably the little um, animations that Canva can do, um, which are very templated. They look like sort of standard PowerPoint-y slide type animations. They're not particularly interesting. I think when you can take a, a branded image, introduce a bit of motion in runway and then run that on social, there'll be a time period where that's interesting. Um, and you'll get attention online because you're doing it and then it will become passe and everybody's images will do it and then no one will pay attention anymore. So that's the sort of, that's I think going to be the first use case that as a marketer unlocks it for me. But as I say, it's far too much effort to get anything half decent for me at least out of it to, for even that simple use case. So until we cross that barrier, I'm playing with it. I'm not thinking about how I can use it for work, if I'm honest. Yeah, 
exactly the same. Right, let's move on from video and let's talk a little bit about OpenAI's announcements this week. Martin, tell us a bit more about these enhancements and cost reductions that were um, shared on the Twitter sphere. Small changes, but significant ones nonetheless. They've announced some updates on their text embeddings models as well as some improvements and optimizations to GPT-4 Turbo and GPT-3.5 Turbo. Since GPT-4 Turbo was launched, one of the criticisms, especially from developers, was that it had become kind of lazy. If you asked it to write some code, it would not give you the full code. It would truncate the code. It would tell you to add in bits here and there and put lots of comments in it saying, and this is where you need to integrate this with that. And sometimes you just wanted it to give me the full code. I've given you 40 lines of code. I wanted you to fix the bug and give me the, the full 40 lines of code back fixed. But instead what it does is it gives you like 10 lines and says, copy and paste this here. But it sounds like they've fixed that. They've made it less lazy uh, and giving it a, a, a more complete outputs. They've also improved uh, some issues that were reported with non-English UTF-8 generation. So this is some of the characters that it would generate. It wasn't very good and it would be a bit um, a bit buggy. So GPT-3.5 Turbo, they've made some improvements here on the cost front. So now the model offers 50% lower input prices and 25% reduced output prices, making the model more affordable. Uh, and I think they've made some improvements to the model in terms of accuracy and format response capabilities. But the big headline here is it's substantially cheaper to use than it was previously. And that matters. I've been doing a project recently where we've been working with a client to help improve their analysis and insight extraction from lots of qualitative data. Spreadsheets with 70 rows of text inputs, you know, probably what 30 columns of data formatted badly, completely inconsistent in terms of the responses you get from people. And using the, the GPT for Sheets plugin, which is excellent, by the way, if anybody wants to integrate uh, the OpenAI models with Google Sheets. I highly recommend that as a, as a plugin. But also integrating the Claude for Sheets plugin. I've been playing around trying to get insight extraction and it gets expensive very quickly, particularly when every time you load the, the sheet, so every time you open it, unless you can turn on caching, so it stores the data for six hours. But if you don't have that turned on, it refreshes every cell and runs the prompt again. And I found that when I had uh, GPT-4, not GPT-4 Turbo turned on, and GPT-4 Turbo is considerably cheaper than GPT-4, uh, just refreshing the, the spreadsheet once ended up costing me, uh, well, a couple of quid. <laughs> so just to, just to run it once. So that is quite expensive and not something that you want to do uh, regularly. But yeah, GPT-3, GPT-4, um, if we can get the prices down, that's going to be better for everyone. 
Uh, just on the insights extraction piece, actually, what was fascinating to me was having columns with the analysis of each row from GPT 3.5, GPT 4, and Claude 2.1. The difference in quality and detail with the exact verbatim same prompts was really, really insightful. GPT-4, and this should come as no surprise, was far and away the more detailed, the more insightful, the more nuanced. Claude 2.1, I would say, was very, very, very similar to GPT-3.5. If anything, maybe marginally, fractionally worse. But that could be down to the style of the prompt. I mean, they were basically on a par. But the difference between 3.5 and 4 was night and day. The frustration from a practical perspective, if anybody is going to implement GPT for Sheets, is be aware that Google Sheets has a 30-second timeout if you're making an external API call. So without getting too technical on it, when you run that query and it sends that query in your prompt off to OpenAI, if it doesn't get a response back within 30 seconds, you see an error message. And the problem with GPT-4 and GPT-4 Turbo is the latency on these models is quite slow. So if you've got quite a long prompt and you're expecting quite a long response, it can be more than 30 seconds, therefore you'll get an error message. And this can, let me tell you, be infuriating. Yeah, for those... We've talked about this quite a few months ago, but so if you're new to the podcast, you might not have heard the story, but in the original days of the podcast, one of the key drivers for Martin and I was we want to use AI in as many areas of podcast production as we can, because that's kind of half the point of doing the podcast is to see what can AI help with, right? Having two humans having a conversation should be one of the most human driven things that can exist, but we found ways to infuse AI in a number of areas. And one of the things that we tried was using Google Sheets, using a plugin like this, and having GPT-4 write the script for the podcast based on the stories that we copy-pasted into it. So in cell 1A, you copy-paste your story, and then this is a simplification, but in cell um, 1B, it sends that story to GPT-4, and with a set of instructions, and GPT-4 writes a script off the back of it, and then it populates that cell, um, which was great except three quarters of the time it would time out, which basically made it unusable, right? Because it was supposed to be something that would save us time, but you spent so many times rerunning, rerunning, rerunning the prompt until you actually got an output whilst burning uh, API costs the whole time. So that 30 second window is a pain and it causes a lot of issues. But if you're listening to this, I think Martin's use case there is really awesome. And I've heard a number of people, when I've talked about this out and about, really thinking of interesting ways to use spreadsheet data to automatically drive GPT-4 outputs. So another great example would be, you wanna do some sort of cold email outbound prospecting process, but you want your emails to be somewhat customized. Well now, if you have, column A has maybe the person's name, column B has some information about their company, and column C has the particular product that you think they'll be interested in, Um, you could now create customized prospecting emails that are more than 
just the smart content that we use in a lot of the automation systems today. You know, hi, first name, how's it going over at company, right? They're going to be better than that. And so I think we're back to, these are the tools, this is the practical thing they can do, right? They can run prompts and, and generate information from GPT-4 at scale. How are you going to structure a spreadsheet to drive value in your marketing and sales organization using it whilst taking on board Martin's really helpful comments about the levels in quality difference between GPT-4, 3.5 and Claude, the cost differences, you know, you got to get that cost benefit ratio right. And that darn 30 second timeout that's going to trip you up if you try and do something too lengthy or complicated that GPT-4 just struggles to produce the information in the right time. Cool. Thanks for sharing that with us, Martin. Um, can I ask you a quick question, actually? Who's using G GPT 3.5? They're reducing the cost for it. So they obviously think some people are going to benefit from that. Like, what's the use case for that? Because we've just talked about how much better GPT 4 is. So who's using GPT 3.5 in these things? Yeah, so GPT 3.5, I think, still does an excellent job, particularly with a well-crafted prompt. In fact, in the project I was just describing, the next iteration for me is to, rather than having zero shot prompting for GPT-3, what I'm going to do is take the output that I got from GPT-4 and give it that in the prompt for GPT-3.5 to kind of give it an example of the level of detail and information that I want. So I'm going to give it a few shot prompt. And I think that's where GPT-3.5 will come into its own because it's really good with few shot prompting but it means your input costs are higher right because you've got to do much longer uh you've got to do much longer prompting but when it sees that pattern recognition it does a very good job also for a lot of applications gpt 3.5 again with few shot prompting is, is really good you know writing social media posts can be very good if you've given it some examples text classification it's really good for that. Doing sentiment analysis, really good for that. So there's, there, I think there is a lot of use cases, um, but I think for most people, as an assistant, you know, that kind of back and forth dialogue, help me solve this problem, GPT-4 is just much better. But where you have a, particularly a, a use case like we've got the podcast, we could, we don't, but we could get the RSS feed from the podcast, put it into a spreadsheet, taking episode title, show notes, publish date, etc., and just have a series of columns giving us tweets, giving us LinkedIn posts, giving us email subject lines in our style and our tone of voice because we've done that in the few shot prompt where we give the prompt examples of ones that we like and then it gives us the output. So I think that's where it can be applied quite effectively. That's quite cool because then we can use a tool like Zapier to just automatically schedule those posts, um, ideally with a human in the loop. So whatever tool we're using, we can go and check and make sure they're not absolute nonsense and then um, they're ready for posting. Because nobody would ever do that, would they, Paul? I definitely haven't done that in the past on this very podcast and shared <laughs> posts on LinkedIn fully automated and gone, ah, I didn't mean to do that. Yeah, that when I had to forward that one to you and I was like... <laughs> Like, oh, it's Friday. I'm quite tired, Martin. 
but this makes no sense, does it? <laughs> You're like, no, sorry, that was this an AI generated one that slipped through. <laughs> it happens to the best of us. Right, let's move on to our next story then, Martin. We're going to talk 11 Labs briefly um, because they just got a ton of funding. So for those of you that are new to the podcast, 11 Labs is one of the leaders in voice technology. So they're the ones that have been creating synthetic voices where you write a script and then it reads it out for you and sounds very, very human. They've been piloting um, and driving voice cloning in terms of cloning your own voice and writing a script that then speaks in your own voice and also trying to introduce other clever aspects to voice synthesis around maintaining emotional style, tran um, translating between languages. So if you speak in English, it will then translate it and have you speak it in Spanish in your voice and all that good stuff. And this week they got $80 million. Um, that's, that felt a bit uh, Dr. Evil there. $80 million uh, in Series B fa uh, funding led by notable investors like Andreessen Horowitz, um, Sequoia Capital and all these firms that are very much Silicon Valley tech investment. Um, but I think this just goes to show how people see this as being big business. Um, I did see some sort of, will I call it banter? Yeah, let's go with banter. But basically people questioning the value, because I think it puts their valuation at like half a billion or something. And people questioning... Mm how defensible their moat is when Meta's releasing open source models, supposedly that, you know, we've seen some demos of how, of what their models can do. No one can access them yet, as far as I know, but they've been very open sourcey so far, have Meta. So is there a open source voice synthesis model coming from Meta that's basically as good as Eleven Labs is? We've got Play HT, we've got voice synthesis is starting to be built into tools in a sort of rudimentary way like Descript, so I don't know. I think that's a fair criticism in terms of just how defensible Eleven Labs' position is. We love them, we should say, as well. We think their technology is cool. We play with it all the time. We're always looking for cool use cases. But a lot of money going into a lot of AI apps that might not have a defensible market position, which is interesting. When you consider that you can do AI voice generation through Google's cloud AI suite, Amazon has got a system called Poly, which just AI voice generation, Play HT, you've mentioned. You've got Lovo with their Jenny application. You've got Eleven Labs. The competition is there. Plus, as you say, Meta are working on this as well, and they're very open sourcey in the way that they do it. So this is going to be a very competitive landscape, and it is going to be baked into tools left, right, and center half a billion does seem high there's a lot of hype at the moment can they keep the the momentum going with new product releases they've just launched the dubbing studio which is a uh, and they've got a voice library as well they've got quite a big voice library um yeah just on that dubbing studio that offers enhanced content production capabilities where you can dub entire videos. So you can just drop in a whole clip and it will overdub the whole piece. Um, they've got a, a mobile reader app, which facilitates the instant conversion of text and URLs into audio. They've got a very good API, which 
even I've managed to to build things that integrate with it. And, you know, I'm not a coder, as I've said many times in the past. So if they can keep innovating and pushing the boundaries and, and I think what sets them apart at the moment, and I've actually written a blog post about this, is the quality of their voices is just better than all of the others. Mm. The nearest I can find in terms of emotional range and you know, having some depth to the voice is Lovo and the, the quality of the outputs you get from Jenny. But Eleven Labs, I think, is just the, the best in terms of quality of voice at the moment. Yeah, I mean, and they're buzzing because I think they've only got, you know, they're less than 100 employees and at this big valuation. So I, I do think they're doing exciting things. I should say, the I, I was summarizing some back and forth on Twitter and LinkedIn questioning mm. this. I'm not saying that's like my own personal opinion, although I think it's an interesting potential marker of the amount of hype inflation that's happening in the market. But I, I think their tools are really cool. I completely agree with that. Um, I do want to play with Metas though. Like the most recent demo I saw, I think it was last week, had people speaking one language, but with very deliberate sort of emotional um, expression. So like being, being scared, being excited, whispering and then translating that into another language spoken in that same person's voice, but maintaining the emotional performance. Um, you just think about the use cases of this for call centers and all those other things that we've talked about. But as marketers being able to create audio versions of all your blog posts that don't sound sort of crappy and robotic like all voice synthesis has been, will there be an audio book production market like we know it right or will you buy the text version on kindle and you'll get three voices for free but if you want the really cool voices or you know what happens when uh, famous orators who have lovely voices they are you know you can now get all your books read for you by morcom freeman because they've licensed his voice out and you can get all your audio books written in his uh, read in his style there's just so many things here that again i think we're on a cusp of a revolution in terms of how we use spoken audio in so many different areas. And I suspect that the likes of Andreessen Horowitz are looking at Eleven Labs as being major fuel for that, where they would think the commercial applications of this technology are so wide ranging that the revenue is massive, that even if there's eight companies that all go to market with very popular products, they all still make an absolute ton of cash, which of course could be very possible as well. Let's talk website builders. You've been playing, Martin. Talk to us about how you feel about website builders. There's been a lot of hype around AI tools and the demo videos, as we've seen in, and, and have, in fact, talked about today, uh, showing off products in their very best light. And one that always stuck in my mind was the Wix AI website builder, which looked so cool. The idea that you could enter your prompt and it would go away and build you this site. And then you could edit the site by further prompting, saying, make it more uh, modern, make it more uh, dynamic, make it more classic or what have you. And it would make all of these things on the fly. And the video, I remember at the time we talked about it, just looked so cool. And I was really excited to get my hands on it. Well, that now exists as a product. You can use it. 
the the Wix AI website builder. And to say that it is not what I expected <laughs> based on the video is something of an understatement. So the mechanism for, for this is you go on to the website builder and it starts off with a chat interface and it will say, tell us the name of your business. And you type in the name of your business. And then it says, tell us about your business and the services and products that you sell. And then you type in that as well. And then there's a couple more questions. Effectively, what they've done is they've turned a form into a chat interface to make it, you know, AI, because, because that's what people do, isn't it? They chat with ChatGPT, so that's AI, isn't it? So they give you a form, you fill out the form, then on the next screen, you choose the color and style that you want. So, But it's a limited range, so there'll be six options. And you might be like, oh, I want the green and white one, sans serif font. So you choose that one. And then it picks a template and uses the GPT-3 API, to, I'm, I'm assuming that's what it's using, to populate this template with some text. The thing is, on the examples that I've seen, it's really lacking in depth. It, it seems to take none of the input text that you give it from the prompt and turn it into something relevant on the page. It's a, I think it's trash to be perfectly honest. I think it's really, it's a really poor implementation of it. And the reason I wanted to talk about it is because actually I tried a version of this with another CMS from a company called Doric. So Doric is based out of Bangladesh it's a no-code CMS. In fact, the artificially intelligent marketing website is built and hosted on the Doric website builder. And they've literally this week launched their AI website builder in beta. So it's private beta. And it's pretty good. First of all, it's much more like standard prompting. It says, what's the name of your business? And then give us a description of your business in 1000 characters and you give it that and then you hit generate and then it chooses one of the templates for you, but it uses your description to choose the style for you. So it will, and I've played with this in a few different versions now, and it does a pretty good job. Now you can go in and edit the global styles if you don't like what it generates, but you know, if you're using an AI generator for your website, chances are you're not somebody with a huge design team. You're probably a solo entrepreneur. Maybe you're a marketing consultant or a yoga teacher or whatever, right? You're not there building websites all the time with this detail. So it does a very good job of choosing the style. And then it literally will build the website. You can see it filling in all the text in all of the different spots as it goes. And it does a really good job. It takes some of the detail. You can tell in the back end, they've really thought about taking your input and applying that to things like the product and services, applying that to what this section should be versus this section. And you don't see that in the Wix version. The Wix right. version slaps in some sections that feel like placeholders and it almost feels like the text in there is placeholder as opposed to the Doric version where the text that it puts in feels informed by your prompt. It feels relevant. So I think for a really small startup 
based out in Bangladesh. They have done a fantastic first stab at this. And it gives me hope that a decent AI website builder will come to the fore. Now, I've also seen the HubSpot AI website builder. I saw it at Inbound and I saw a live demo. And that's more similar to the Wix version in terms of the, the implementation of it. It's more of a guided wizard, a WYSIWYG kind of, and what you, well, what you end up with is a WYSIWYG drag and drop template, but to get there, you go through a wizard asking you lots of questions, asking you to fill in some data, pick the style and template that you like the look of, and then it creates it with images that it's found from stock libraries and text that it's generated with, with chat GPT 3.5. And that does a good job, right? That, that's a good starting point. Right. But the most pure version of an AI builder that I've seen is the version from Doric. And I think they've done a very good job um, for saying it literally launched in beta just this week. Sounds like it's worth uh, going and having a play with Doric if you are interested in these types of AI-driven website builders. I think listening to you talk about that, it really makes me reflect on my biggest challenge at the moment is I think I've got AI hype cycle whiplash right? I'm like, yes, this is amazing. Oh, this sucks. Yes, this is amazing. Oh, this sucks. Like I'm in the excited phase. I'm in the trough of disillusionment and I'm flipping back and forward in a single day, depending on if I'm looking at video or I'm using GPT-4 for an interesting use case, or I'm looking at a website builder. Um, I can flip between those states in a single domain like video, um, or if <laughs> yeah. I'm moving between domains. And I think that is the biggest challenge at the moment in AI and using it for all these different use cases. Because we're seeing an explosion, right? Um, text generation, image generation, video generation, audio generation, and then layered on top of that, what I would call quasi-thinking agents that can do some brainstorming and thinking for you, right? Like turning a prompt into a into a web page template, that's a multi-step process that's beyond just getting an output. And we're racing ahead in so many different areas all at the same time. None of them are in a straight line. And I think as a general user, it's very hard to know where where you can obtain value with these different systems. And I think if you go into using them and you're and then you get a, a sort of a bad first output or it doesn't really generate the thing that you want, you can see why people would quite quickly go, AI is fun and it's nice, but it's not there yet because it, it doesn't give me the things I want. And I suspect that a lot of people are actually running into that and then thinking and putting AI to one side for a bit and going, yeah, can't do the things I need it to do. Um, so listening to you talk about website builders nicely encapsulates that whiplash for me. And it's uh, definitely something I'm feeling. Yeah, if I was going to give any tip to a marketer that is looking to maybe deploy AI in their product and announce it, maybe trail it with sneak preview type of thing. One way that you can help people like me and Paul avoid such a whiplash is to just manage expectations. Don't put out videos showcasing stuff that it can't actually do. Right. That's not what we need. Seems simple. Because we're right? just gonna be we're just gonna be like disappointed when we try and use it. And that's not what you want in yeah. your users. Right. So we're drifting in on time, Martin. We probably need to swing through these last few stories quite quickly. So Let's briefly touch on this MIT study. So there was a recent study by MIT's Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory with MIT Sloan. Uh, and, and basically, 
This study looked into the potential impact of AI on jobs with a sort of focus on computer vision. Um, and, the, and the sort of core finding from the study is that only about 23% of tasks that require vision are currently economically viable to automate using AI. And that this is probably one of those research reports that is a counterbalance to other search reports that are saying AI is coming for everybody's jobs and in one year nobody will have a job because AI will do everything. Um, and what this study is saying is AI's potential is large, especially on the like giving computers vision to see things and do things. But the cost, the sheer cost of doing that massively outweighs having humans do it. And so I think this study was quite a nice counterbalance to some of those other studies. And it further shines the light on the cost of using AIs. I mean, one of the, there was another story this week about just how much energy consumption is used to run um, run these AI models. Um, I, I'm going to get this quote wrong, but there was a quote, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, that was something of the equivalent of, um, asking a simple question of ChatGPT is like driving a Lamborghini to do pizza deliveries. Um, <laughs> and and I think that's probably true as, as well. So that at some point, and, and you see Sam Altman talk a lot about the next revolution we're going to require is going to be energy generation because the energy that we're going to need to run all of these server farms and all of these graphics processing units that are, or these emerging chip architectures to drive large language models. It's all going to take a lot of energy, a lot of um, development of other technologies. And so probably as uh, as folks, we uh, as humans, we've got a little bit more time maybe before AI comes and takes all our jobs than we thought. Yeah, that's uh, an interesting point from Sam Altman, particularly as he has his fingers in the energy pie, doesn't he, with Helion, the, uh, the nuclear energy startup that's uh, no doubt going to be powering those server farms and the rest of us for years to come. Yeah, if you look inside baseball on this one, the fact that Sam Altman, it, you see these different things emerge where he's involved in companies designing new chips, right? Because he's clearly going to see how many chips the world's going to need if everything's powered by AI. He's looking at energy companies because he's like, I know how much energy is going to be required to, to run those chips. If you're inside the system on this, you can probably make some pretty healthy bets on where the economic drivers are going to be um, that enable this AI revolution. So doesn't surprise me. Uh, in fact, it's probably worth watching what a lot of these people are investing their time and their money in outside of AI, because they probably know things that we all don't. Not that I'm qualified in any way to give a, uh, investment advice, and I'm not, so please don't take my advice. But I just think it's interesting. <laughs> um, let's talk mobile phones, Martin, because uh, we've been talking about one of the cool things that we probably will see over time is that small models can be run natively on a phone without having to use go up to the internet and servers, which obviously has a range of benefits that we've talked about. But Galaxy, Samsung Galaxy S24 has been announced and released over the last week or so. And they're the first, to my knowledge, the first phone man, big phone manufacturer to lean into AI in a big way. So what do we have that uh, the S24 is going to be bringing to the market? It's really an AI forward mobile device they've really leaned into the to the messaging and basically the the chipset and the technology underpinning it allows the, there to be a lot of 
AI on device. So they talk about uh, live translate and an interpreter offering real-time voice and text translations, which on the demo looked very cool. They've got the Pro Visual Engine. So this is uh, a comprehensive suite of AI-powered tools for image capturing and editing. So things like enhanced night photography, for high-quality video editing and uh, photography manipulation on device. They've got this um, intuitive search with circle to search. So this is a new gesture-driven feature, which allows Google to search by simply drawing a circle and highlighting something on the screen. So it will do a kind of Google image search or something similar with that, which is a great new input. I always like these new interfaces where you get a new way of interacting with tech. I'm like, oh, that's that's pretty cool. That so, one yeah, is that, cool. Because if you think about... Yeah, it's a nice one. For marketers, we, we talk about how if we speak to computers most of the time, instead of typing and reading stuff, I'm not so necessarily saying it's all or nothing on that, but as user behavior changes there, it just puts more pressure on search engine optimization as a strategy, right? There's so many things we've talked about on the podcast in terms of Google's generative search experience and it showing more and more answers in the search pane and not driving more traffic to your website. Then we've got people using what we expect is imminent in terms of smarter assistance that we can ask questions of that, again, we're not looking at a search results page. We're not clicking through to other websites. Now we've got circle things in images that you think are cool and then Google will search for content around that. The The potential complexity and challenges ahead for SEO professionals over the next two or three years, I don't think should be underestimated as people's engagement mechanisms with, with computers and phones evolves to be drawing circles and speaking to agents like, yeah, SEO is... I'm really fascinated to see how quickly that world changes, and it could be, it could still be slow. I don't know, right? But, but it's that fascinates me. Yeah, just on the idea of it being a one of the first from an AI on device um, kind of manufacturers, the Google Pixel Eight and the Pixel Eight Pro, they have a lot of AI baked into them as well. I don't think as much as this particular device. OnePlus, which is the manufacturer of device that I use, they just announced their OnePlus 12 device this week. And Qualcomm were there at the keynote talking about the on-device AI capabilities of that phone. Again, don't think it quite matches that of the, the Galaxy S24 series, but we're seeing more and more of this coming on device. So we're probably going to see most flagship devices launched over the next year being capable of running, I think, 10 billion parameter models on device. Yeah, that's interesting. And ultimately, we don't want to give them wrong impression here on the podcast. AI has been underpinning a number of things in phones for years, right? If you use yeah. Google Photos and it's got smart tagging capabilities and you can type in the word dog into your search bar and it will go find all your pictures with dogs in. So it's, le it's less that phones have got AI now. I think phones always had AI or have had forms of AI for many years. I think what's interesting here is models on device and 
everybody getting on the AI hype train and making AI a differentiator for their platform, um, which will very soon not be a differentiator probably. I think one of the things I thought was cool here, and I don't know how it will play out, is some of these onboard, assuming they're onboard, transcription and translation services. Because one of my use cases back in the day for Otter, which is a transcription, one of the first transcription services, was pre-pandemic, having my phone, putting it on the table for a meeting and then having Otter transcribe it for me. But if a lot of that stuff ends up just on board my phone as it is, am I going to stop using certain platforms like Otter for creating transcriptions of calls, for example? And I think that transcription-y market's in extreme dynamic flux, right? Because it's all it's being baked into Teams and Zoom and Google. And if I was, I think if I was CEO of Otter and similar tools, I'd be a bit worried, honestly, because... It's just being baked into everything. Yeah. So I use a tool called Laxis. We've had Eric from Laxis on the podcast recently. I use this in Google Meet all the time. And Google Meet has recently launched its own transcription tool that you can have turned on. And if you join a meeting where it's turned on, it tells everybody that it's being transcribed. I still use Laxis over, even though I'm in the Google Workspace ecosystem, I still use Laxis. And the reason for that is Laxis can join calls in other services. So by having it connected to my calendar, if it's my Google Meet, it just transcribes it in the background. But if I get invited to a Teams call for a client or something like that, I still get my own transcription because Laxis joins that call. So the idea of it being cross-platform is, is really critical for me. Interesting. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, right, two more stories, listeners, and then we'll let you to go about your day. Um, the first one, very quickly, is a interesting story where AI was being used for political misinformation. So you've probably seen this in the news. It's fairly been fairly high profile, but basically, a robocaller using a fake AI-generated voice of President Joe Biden urging Democrats to stay home and not participate in primary elections. And we talked about this a bit on the podcast. The, and we've talked about 11 labs today, the ability of AI to clone and mimic people's voices. And with tools like HeyGen, even video, we're drifting ever closer to that world where you can't trust what you see. You can't trust a mid-journey image. You can't trust a voice. You can't trust a video. I know people who are already talking about having like safe words or stories that they can share with each other to prove that it's actually them that's calling, right? Like your grandmother rings you to say that she's got herself in some trouble and she needs you to send some money and it sounds exactly like her, but actually it's synthetic voice, for example. Uh, and this is the first sort of mainstream media example of it being used to influence pretty major processes like the US election cycle. So we won't go into too much detail on this, but I think as marketers and communications professionals we will need to work hard to set the standard to build trust in content that's supported with, with AI tools because the amount of mistrust that's going to get generated by bad actors is going to be large enough. So labeling things as being generated by AI or supported with AI, I think is going to become more and more important as the tool's abilities to pull the wool over our eyes only increase. And so it's probably something that we all as humans need to be aware of in terms of fact-checking and and really being sure that we can trust our sources, but as marketers, maybe a bit of extra 
requirements upon us to do the right thing in these areas. As we see more and more examples of it, and today there was the example of Taylor Swift with some deep fake pornography shared widely on Twitter, and she's come out and said this is terrible and it's got lots of headlines. As we see more and more examples of this, I think people are going to get more and more aware of it. When it's high profile cases like Joe Biden, like Taylor Swift, who, let's be honest, is the biggest celebrity in in music right now, people are going to get smarter and more discerning. I, I, I like to think. I have trust in humanity where people will just take a second and say, hold on, is this real? I think you need to be worried, Martin, because for me, you're the biggest celebrity in the world of AI and marketing. And so having someone clone your voice from this raw source podcast here, I think is a major risk for you. <laughs> yeah. And there's enough video material out there that they might turn it into some deep fake porn as well. So, you know, strap in everyone. <laughs> I'm glad you didn't mispronounce your words there, but yes, it's uh, <laughs> usually most podcast hosts would edit this bit out, but we're not going to do that. Um, right. Let's move on to our last story, Martin. Let's go with this, uh, Microsoft Copilot. So we talked a bit about ChatGPT for Teams and how finally small businesses can tap into the commercial power of ChatGPT without having to worry about the information they put into ChatGPT. Hot off the heels, pretty much within like a day or two, Microsoft Copilot. So what happened here? They have released Microsoft Copilot to everybody. So it was previously restricted to organizations that had, was it 300 seats? I think you needed to buy Whereas now they're saying organizations of any size can sign up, maybe a minimum of two seats for the business version. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. But even the home and family edition of Microsoft 365 has a co-pilot upgrade as well, which means that you now have access to co-pilot chat, which was previously Bing chat. You have co-pilot in Outlook, which does summarization of emails as well as drafting replies for you. A co-pilot for PowerPoint, which is giving you a starting point. If you just write a bit of a prompt, it will create the, the PowerPoint deck for you. I've seen some really cool demos of that, actually. And it, it does a pretty good job, a kind of B-plus level performance. It's, I'm not going to knock it like I did when we reviewed the Google Duets, uh, Google Slides version it seems to uh, do a got... good job when you provide it with like a word document so like say you've got a yeah. report that you've written and you need to turn it into a presentation it seems to do quite a good w job of doing that conversion so i, I think that's going to save quite a lot of people time actually to get that start for 10 in terms of getting it all the material put into a powerpoint style laid out and all that stuff they've also got copilot in word which is pretty much bringing content generation into Microsoft Word and Copilot in Excel, which at the moment is quite limited and not really worth talking about. It's the area that I have the most hope for because I think when that gets good, we'll start to see some uh, very exciting data analysis functionalities put into the hands of everybody. Pricing of this is $20 per month user and is available now yeah it's a fascinating one i i reflect back on us getting super excited about the microsoft copilot like launch video which was 
about last March, April time. So it's taken the best part of a year for this to be in the hands of everyone, which I think, relatively speaking, for you know what they've had to build and deploy and test it through the larger organizations, the enterprises that have had access is probably fair game. But it's not quite as powerful as the demo made it look and we don't we still don't have the excel part so it comes back to an earlier part of our conversation martin in terms of if you see something cool in a research paper or a demo how long until the power of that is in your hands probably six to 12 months probably closer to 12 and reduce your expectations on that tool by 25 to 50 percent based on what you saw in the demo seems to be a rule of thumb in terms of the commercial application of a lot of these ai based tools especially the generative ones Right. I think we'll call it there. Thank you for sticking with us, folks. There was a lot to cover this week. Thank you to you, Martin, as always, for your time and insights. Much appreciated. Well, thank you. And I hope you can just have a moment to sit and think about what Jurgen Klopp has done for Liverpool and be thankful that it happened. Do you know, I managed to forget that over the course of the last right. hour and now you've just brought it all back Sorry for me. So, um, it's always 5 p.m. somewhere, so it's probably time for a, a beer and a tear. Um, but yes, that's um, that's now going to take up the focus for me for the rest of the day. I'm sure I've got nothing better to do. Uh, yes, I do. Right, listeners, thank you for your time. We'll look forward to giving you the news in our next episode. Until then, bye, everyone. Thank you for listening to Artificially Intelligent Marketing. To stay on top of the latest trends, tips, and tools in the world of marketing AI, be sure to subscribe. We look forward to seeing you again next week.